Hello, welcome. This is Rob Shank, your host for Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of this brilliant, brave, young World War II era church leader uh, who would raise his voice in opposition to the racist regime of Adolf Hitler and ultimately pay for that with his life, but not before leaving us a marvelous legacy, a library on Christian ethics and community uh, and so many other subjects that is really unrivaled uh, in uh, 20th century uh, theology and Christian ethics. So uh, today, we're talking with a guest who intersects with many of those Bonhoeffrian ideas. Reverend Adam Russell Taylor is president of Sojourners, an ecumenical Christian organization that works to advance justice and peace. He previously led the Faith Initiative at the World Bank Group, served as vice president of advocacy at World Vision, U.S., was co-founder and executive director of Global Justice, and was selected as a White House fellow under the Obama administration. A graduate of Harvard University's uh, Kennedy School of Government and the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology, uh, Adam is ordained in the American Baptist Church and the Progressive National Baptist Convention and serves at the Alfred Street Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Adam, great to talk to you in this context. I'm used to seeing you on a near-weekly Zoom call, the Faith Table, and I know you as a friend and colleague, but man, when I get all the literature about your upcoming book, uh, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community, out, I think, any day now, uh, I appreciate you all the more. I'm saying, wow, this is the guy I just know. But when I look at the bona fides, I'm more impressed than ever. So Adam, nice to have you here in conversation. Uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, really enjoy getting to know you better over the last number of years and working together and just really grateful for this chance to be on your podcast. Well, and I discover uh, that you're something of a neighbor because Cheryl and I have just relocated to Alexandria and she just opened up my wife. I'm talking about folks uh, in our podcast family. My wife, Cheryl, who's a, uh, a psychotherapist, just opened an office not far from where you serve at uh, Alfred Street Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. So uh, we're getting closer than ever, my dear. Yeah, brother. no, that's great. Well, you know, we're kind of a glutton for punishment in that we actually live in Silver Spring, Maryland, but we commute all the way to Alexandria. Oh. So I don't actually live too close. Oh, but, um, you know, when, when church resumes, I will be there most Sundays. And uh, who knows, we might be able to have brunch together or something. Yeah, at least you'll be a pastoral neighbor. <laughs> exactly. Let's exactly. put it that way. Uh, I don't get up to uh, up your way much, so we'll find we'll find a, a way to do it in Old Town, Alexandria. Well, listen, congratulations on the release of A More Perfect Union, a new vision for building 
the beloved community, Out with Broadleaf Books, uh, an imprint of 1517 Media, uh, broadleafbooks.com. I'm sure we can get it everywhere. I sure hope folks do, because while your new book landed at a time when my to-be-read bin was just overflowing, I pushed a lot of them aside and opened it up immediately because it's so timely, Adam. It's a prophetic word for our time. And the way we do these conversations in Shank Talks, Bonhoeffer, is, you know, we, we look for the nexus with Bonhoeffer. And as I was reading you in a more perfect union, I thought immediately of Bonhoeffer in Life Together and uh, his seminal work, Sanctorum Communio, uh, a theological study of the sociology of the church, which really informs all of Bonhoeffer's writing and is all about Christ manifest in community. And you're talking about the beloved community. Can we go right? You know what? I'm skipping a whole phase of this because we always want to know our author guests. So before we go, I, I was hot to go right into <laughs> okay. your concept of the beloved community, but can we talk about our beloved brother here? Uh, Adam Russell Taylor, I know you weren't born an author. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Help us get to know you a little personally? Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, my origin story, if you will, I'm a, my family are, are big Marvel fans. Actually, our dog is named Marvel, actually. <laughs> and so uh, I picked up right. on that and I even thought, I wonder. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly why. <laughs> We, we couldn't narrow it down to just one favorite Marvel superhero. So we just took the whole universe and put it in the dog. But my origin story really starts with my parents. So in 1968, my mother, who is black, and my father is white, made the very controversial decision at the time to get married, putting their love for each other over a lot of the bigotry they experienced and a lot of the pressure they experienced not to get married. That year is significant, as you probably know, because it was really a tragic turning point in a lot of the momentum that had been built through the civil rights movement. It was the year Dr. King was assassinated. It was the year Indeed. Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. It was a year in which the culture wars were really taking hold in this country and Vietnam was sparking all kinds of controversy. And so, you know, they instilled in me, and I should actually say it's only a year after interracial marriage was made legalized across the country through the historic Supreme Court case, loving versus the state of Virginia. And so they really instilled in me this deep and abiding belief that not only are we all made in the image of God, which means we all have immeasurable worth and dignity, but that our diversity, and in particular my diversity as someone that comes from you know, a black and white background, is a real source of strength and not a source of weakness, that it's an asset, not a liability. And I really grew up internalizing that and realized that my biracial background had enabled me to be a bridge builder in some cases. The other thing that I kind of gleaned from my parents, but I also discovered somewhat on my own, is that I became mesmerized by the civil rights struggle. And while I grew up as a part of Generation X, very much in the shadow of the civil rights struggle, I became very convinced that my generation inherited the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. 
And as I read more about the movement and I became a huge fan of the Eyes and the Prize series, which I still think is one of the hands down best documentaries ever made. That I agree. This animating moral vision of the beloved community, which Dr. King spoke to so often, but so did Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and other civil rights leaders that often don't get as much acclaim as Dr. King. And you know what's fascinating to me is that as I did research for this book, there isn't a single definitive speech or sermon where Dr. King focuses entirely on the beloved community, but he references it all over the place. And so in one sense, we know that it's a moral vision that you know, had such resonance in the, in the civil rights time, but it also is kind of this open canvas because we can paint a picture in more contemporary terms of the beloved community that hopefully will resonate with future generations. And while, you know, the beloved community has faded a little bit, I think, in the popular imagination, I still believe, and this is part of the reason I wrote this book, that we desperately need a unifying moral vision that could help unite our country across all kinds of divides, racial, geographic, cultural, political, etc. And that that moral vision has to tap into our most sacred civic values and religious values. And I think the beloved community does that. And I can certainly speak more to that. But gives you a little sense of my background. I'll just say a couple more things really quickly. You know, I grew up really believing that I was called to work in the context of social justice and politics, and then later experienced a call to ministry and initially really resisted it because I associated ministry with only being the pastor of a church. And of course, that is a really critical, beautiful expression of ministry. But it took me a couple of years of arguing with God, and we usually lose those arguments, at least you hope you lose them. <laughs> hmm. But hmm. I came to this epiphany that my, I kind of created this fi false binary between going into ministry and kind of staying engaged in politics and staying engaged in social justice. And that my particular call was to try to reawaken and revitalize a commitment to social justice as being integral to Christian discipleship. And so I feel like that vocational calling has very much animated my career and it's led me to do all kinds of things. I won't rehash my bio, but most recently it led me back to Sojourners after the 2016 election where I saw the rise of a resurgent white supremacy and white nationalism that then candidate Trump really tapped into and helped to stoke in this country. And it was always there, but I think he was a real brilliant entrepreneur and figuring out how to exploit it and bring it to the surface. And I just felt that I had to be faithful to my calling by getting back into the fray of trying to get the church to be the church in that moment and to really try to protect our democracy. And so I rejoined Sojourners as the executive director, entered into a multi-year transition with Jim Wallace, the founder, who you, you obviously know, and have now sure. kind of taken over the helm of the organization, which is a huge privilege and honor. So yeah, that's a little bit of a, a taste. Well, it, it's a wonderful taste, and uh, and it leads me to a second congratulations because, of course, I've known you in your new role, uh, relatively new role at Sojourners. Uh, so uh, that was a given, but when you rehearse it, I realized, wait a minute, that's also uh, something uh, new for you, for Sojourners, for all those that Sojourners serve so well. Uh, so congrats on assuming that critical post at Sojourners and on the book. And uh, boy, I do want to ask you again 
I want to get right into this beloved community and hear your definition of it. Uh, but before I do that, what about, uh, you, you told us there of the beautiful story of the love and commitment and marriage of your parents uh, in, a, in a difficult time uh, for them uh, and in our country. What about the wider family? What about the extended family beyond uh, your nuclear family? Were they welcoming of your parents' interracial marriage? Yeah, thanks for asking. It was a real mix. I mean, particularly on my dad's side of the family, there were quite a few that were vehemently against it and some that even refused mm. to come to the wedding as a result, particularly I think his mother-in-law at the mm. time and a few others. On my I mom's see. side of the family, my grandfather, who you know, sadly I never had the chance to meet, but actually my middle name, Russell, is named after my grandfather, Russell. Hmm. He was very supportive and was just very, you know, on the side of my parents choosing love. Um, my grandmother, hmm. I think, was kind of worried about what kind of life they would have together, but she came around <laughs> pretty quickly because my dad can be a very I charming <laughs> and uh, charismatic person. And, you know, he, he also adored my grandmother. So it was a wit mix, but let me tell you one quick story, which kind of ties into my life. Please. So when uh, my mother-in-law was trying to convince my, my dad not to get married, one of the arguments she made was that her children would be hopelessly lost, that if they had children, they wouldn't have a kind of a racial home to live in. It's kind of the stereotype of the tragic mulatto. And the, the irony in mm. that is that at least from my experience, and I know this is not true of every single person that comes from a biracial background, but it has been one of the most important gifts in my life. Again, just partly being able to see mm. the world through two different lenses and to be able to, to navigate some of the, the tension points and the friction that still exist. And hopefully, and I guess it's you know, true in many parts of my life, just being able to be a bridge builder and being a kind of advocate for a radically more just and inclusive country. So, you know, I, again, kind of try to lean into that as a, both a gift and a responsibility and uh, mm. grateful for my parents and, and kind of helped me to see that over time. Well, thank you for sharing that. And as you do, I can't help but draw parallels to my own experience in a lighter way, but nonetheless, uh, similar, uh, because when my father announced he was marrying not only a non-Jewish woman, mm. you know, as a, as a, if coming from a kind of the quintessential Jewish, uh, New York Jewish family, Ashkenazic culture, uh, insular in a way, uh, now marrying a non-Jewish uh, woman was a great crisis uh, in his family at the time, but not only so. In the middle 1950s, she was uh, disabled, uh, handicapped, as she described herself back in those days, uh, and had been previously married with two children. Uh, so, you know, this was very controversial culturally for the family, and there were family members that threatened to boycott the wedding. In the end, they attended but they had to exact assurances. So I, I have a little bit, just, just a little bit of a parallel there and realize the magnitude of 
uh, what your family, more than your, your mother and father, uh, were up against, uh, both internally and externally. So thank you for sharing all that. It makes you even more multidimensional uh, than I know you to be. Thank you. Well, here we go then. Uh, you bring a lot to the writing of this book, uh, more than theory, though I think you treat the theoretical side of it uh, excellently. But there's a great personal uh, dimension to all of this. And particularly when it comes to this concept of the beloved community. I remember that term from very long ago. And as you say, it popped up, of course, innumerable times in the civil rights movement. But it actually, I, I think, I'm not an expert on the history of it, but it actually predates what we think of as the modern civil rights uh, movement. It does have a long history, and you note that when you define it uh, in a more perfect union. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you arrive at your definition of the beloved community? Yeah, I can. I, and I should give credit and kind of recognition to Josiah Royce, who really was the one that coined the kind of concept and used the words beloved community. He was one of the early founders of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which Dr. King was later a part of. But its history does date back all the way until the early 1900s in, in that context. And I think it has been a, a moral vision, if you will, or a moral concept that has inspired, been inspiring to other parts of the world as well. But it really became popularized through the civil rights struggle and through the just brilliant rhetoric and theology of Dr. King. So the way that I understand it, and this certainly builds on Dr. King, is twofold. One is really getting to the heart of the word beloved. You know, I think we are designed for community and there's all kinds of forces, both externally and internally. I mean, literally forces in our brain <laughs> that also hardwire us for division. But I think ultimately, particularly from a faith perspective, a Christian perspective, we are called to community. And so the beloved community to me is co-creating together a society, a community in which everyone is respected, everyone is valued, that everyone is enabled to thrive, to realize their full God-given potential. Then there's kind of a definition that I've come up with, which is a little bit more of a kind of policy-oriented or at least practical definition which I still think is actually quite rich and, and could even be profound if we actually lived into it, but it's creating a society in which neither punishment nor privilege is viciously tied to skin color or race or ethnicity or gender or ableness or sexual, sexual orientation, you know, essentially all the things that define us. And I still think that the most principal fault line in our country, in the United States, remains to be race. And so I kind of lead with skin color, but also recognize there's lots of other parts of our identity that are also important and are a source of privilege or punishment. And I try to make the argument that I actually think that this definition is very aligned with the constitutional protections and commitments that our country has made. Now we've always not lived up to those commitments and fallen woefully short of realizing them. 
but it really does align and build on our civic promise and the kind of American creed of liberty and justice for all. But it also aligns with our deep religious convictions. And so, you know, I think that the majority of Americans would agree with this. Now, you know, how we actually get to a, a country where, you know, punishment and privilege no longer are tied to these different parts of identity is an open question and one that I try to grapple with and offer my own prescriptions around. But if we could even agree on this as a, as a basic shared commitment that would define how we evaluate the tough and messy choices of politics and public policy, I really feel like that would be a major step in the right direction. And then the last thing I would just say is that, you know, going back to the beloved and the community being together, one of the things that I love about this moral vision is that it draws from some of the deep wells of kind of the conservative emphasis on, on, on community and on responsibility with the deep wells of the progressive movement and its emphasis on human rights and on human dignity. And so there's a way in which I think it could thread together some of those political divisions in our country without compromising a you know, very clear commitment to justice and to a more inclusive society and country. You say on page seven uh, in your book, the beloved community has arms wide and strong enough for all America including those known as dreamers and others in the immigrant communities, those from religious traditions considered outside the mainstream, and those who have been left out and left behind, from Midwestern towns and rural farms to indigenous reservations and blighted cities or suburbs, red, blue, and everything in between. When we look at the stark divisions within contemporary uh, American uh, society and the population in the culture. When you look at the antipathy of some towards the other, uh, some that wholly reject the other, uh, perhaps even menace and threaten the other. Uh, when you look at the violence of January 6th uh, and, uh, you know, what's now known as the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, um, how, how do we find a place for the folks who are emanating that kind of hostility and contempt and even uh danger it, it, you know i i like you am optimistic i i think there is a way we can find a, a path for one another we can travel on together and and sometimes uh necessarily separately but we're still traveling uh in the same direction together but how how when it comes to the really stark differences, the ones that reject the one or the other. How do we resolve that? Is it blithely optimistic to think that we can? You know, I don't know if it's optimistic or not. What I do know is it's imperative that we find ways to do that. 
And I, I, I guess I am optimistic in that I do believe that there are some ways. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I believe that some of those answers are found in the richness and depth of our faith. I mean, if we, you know, sometimes we, we don't take Jesus' words very seriously, but if we did take his words seriously, his command to love our enemies, to love those who are other than ourselves, and if we kind of take the story of the Good Samaritan seriously, you know, the Samaritan was despised and yet, you know, found the will and the compassion to care for someone who had fallen on violence and adversity. And so, you know, I don't want to sound trite, if you will, but I think that there's such profound meaning in that call. And as hard as it is to love those that have diametrically opposed opinions or perceptions of what America is and what it should be, we are still called to find that love. So there's this kind of, and I should have mentioned this earlier, this understanding of agape love that was very much at the heart of the beloved community for Dr. King and many others. And within that, a firm commitment to nonviolence, both as a means by which we pursue the beloved community, but also as an ethic that we live by. And obviously that is very much, I believe, resonant with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life and writings and all the rest. I, I would say this though, that I don't think we can be naive or suffer from an amnesia that the kind of corrosive and destructive enmity, particularly tied to the original sin of racism and you know that, that sin being a part of our nation's founding with the system of slavery that was um, you know, something that shaped our nation's history that you know we have been struggling with this kind of demon of white supremacy of racism from our nation's beginning and it's mutated and taken different forms we've seen periods of regress and periods of progress oftentimes when there's progress there's a backlash and i think that's certainly part of what explains the the rise of, of trump and his ability to win the highest office in the, in the land but that we've got to kind of have this larger, longer understanding and really still be committed to the work of loving our neighbor, of trying to depolarize our society. And one of the most powerful anecdotes as Christians that we have is that if we really believe that we have a shared identity in Christ, that identity should eclipse any other affiliation or part of our identity. It's not to you know, diminish or dismiss the importance of those other parts of our identity. But sometimes we have elevated, particularly our political and ideological identity in this country, far above our core shared identity in Christ. And I feel like this is a really important message for churches because, you know, as Jim Wallace <laughs> likes to say, as you probably know, instead of our faith shaping our politics, our politics is overly influencing our faith. And it's almost so, so that our politics becomes the defining thing for us rather than our faith being the defining thing where we have such shared values tied into our understanding of scripture and tied into what it means to follow Christ, where we may not all agree on all that, but at least that provides a moral grounding. And I feel like the church has really lost its way where it's been overly co-opted, particularly on the religious right side of the church, into a particular party, a particular brand of politics that have in the process, really damage the reputation of the church. So, you know, there's so much to say on that question. I think it's a really important one and a really big one, but those are a couple of initial thoughts. And I certainly try to wrestle with that quite a bit in this book. 
You know, you make me think of, uh, uh, I can't remember the original author's name, but it later became a film, uh, Gangs of New York, mm. uh, which of course told the story of the very violent uh, street uh conflict in the Five Points neighborhood of Manhattan in the early uh, 19th century. And uh, it was, you know, principally uh, American nativists, Protestants, uh, who were attacking uh, newly arrived Irish Catholic immigrants. And it resulted in uh, I, I'm sure you know the story well, but folks will remember the telling of that terrible bloodbath in New York. And part of the resolution was when a noted uh, Methodist evangelical leader met with the archbishop, uh, the Catholic archbishop of the time, uh, and they resolved to teach their respective peoples their religion. In other words, they had forgotten what it meant to be Christians. Uh, they had forgotten the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and that takes me to a memory of being at Donald Trump's inaugural prayer service at the Washington National Cathedral. When I saw a national evangelical leader, a colleague uh, I had worked with on and off over the decades, you certainly know him, I know him, and I went up to him and I said, you know, perhaps this is a time for us to revisit the Sermon on the mm -hmm. Mount. And his response to me was, I don't have time for that. I have serious work to do. <laughs> you have time for that. I don't have any time for that. And when we say we don't have wow. time to give attention to the core principles of our faith, whether we are Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, or any number of other faiths that that generally, and you referenced the golden rule uh, in the book, uh, all have at least uh, some core tenet that reflects that whole concept of treating others the way we would have them treat us, uh, loving our neighbors as ourselves, etc. Uh, it does seem too simple to be true, and yet, if we can imagine a moment when the majority of people embraced those principles and practiced them, imagine uh, how, how that would solve the violence and, uh, and contention that we experience in our society. So I'm with you on the vision. Uh, I think how we get there is sometimes uh, the challenge. Since you mentioned uh, the politicization of faith, and particularly on the right, although even in the years before the Trump phenomenon, I was warning the folks I was keeping company with in those days, and I think, Adam, you know my history, but I spent 30 years on the religious right, and I was warning my old circle of friends and colleagues that, that, we, were, that, that we were in danger of repeating the errors of the past, and that, in fact, I could make an argument that for a period of time, the mainline, liberal, now progressive-leaning churches had made a similar error some decades ago, where you place religion 
and particularly the religious community, at the service of the political forces of the time. I certainly see that now in my former religious right community, which has been all but utterly politicized. How do we depoliticize the church, whether you're on the right or the left? How do, how do you see depoliticizing the church, getting it out from under the political uh, power? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's two dangers, though. One is the over-politicization of the church. And Dr. King had it's a great quote that I love to share, which is that the church at its best, although I actually think you could replace church with synagogue or mosque or other houses of worship, but the church at its best is called not to be the master or the servant of the state, but to be the conscience of the state. And so where we go wrong is when we try to be the master of the state, take over a political party. I think that's one of the mistakes that the religious right movement tried to make in the 1970s and 1980s. Or we end up often becoming the servant of the state, the kind of appendage, or we get co-opted into a particular political party or movement. But the key is to be the conscious of the state, to really work to try to hold the state accountable to our core biblical priorities. And again, we're going to disagree on exactly what those priorities might, might be and how they, how they show up in the real world. But we should really kind of maintain this prophetic independence. Otherwise, we risk you know, many of the mistakes that really are, have been with us since Constantine declared Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire and the kind of radical countercultural nature of the Christian movement at the time really got co-opted into the Roman state, the Roman Empire, and lost a lot of its prophetic edge and a lot of its independence. But I think there's another challenge that I have seen, particularly since you know, Trump came into office as president, which is that there's a danger in being apolitical and not understanding, not recognizing that following Christ, a poor Jew from Palestine, who in my reading of scripture was quite clear about his commitment to the vulnerable, the marginalized, those who are impoverished, and you know, also engaged in some pretty radical acts to challenge the powers of his time, whether it was religious leaders or even the power of the, the Roman state. So that, and this is you know very in line with, with Bonhoeffer's teachings, that by being apolitical or being silent, we are actually taking a side. We're taking a side of the status quo. And that fallen Christ has profound political, religious, I mean, political, economic, and social implications. And so what I saw from a lot of evangelical pastors, particularly with the rise of Trump, and then when he was in office, is this kind of like, well, I don't want to touch that, the messiness of politics. I might have deep reservations or even strong opposition to what Trump is doing, what he's standing for. But I don't want to divide my church by somehow engaging in politics or preaching politics. And so somehow, somehow we got to find that healthy kind of path where we don't allow our faith to become overly politicized, particularly when it's aligned with a political party per se. But we also don't want to just stand on the sidelines and pretend as though us somehow being neutral is actually not neutrality at all. It is reinforcing the status quo and being complicit in the injustice that we see around us. And so, you know, the, the, my book gets into some of how we navigate that, 
I have to say, actually, my first book, Mobilizing Hope, provides more practical tools on how churches can, can navigate that. And there's certainly also other great resources and books that are out there. But I do think that that other challenge is one that we have to name and, and really try to convince pastors that even, yes, there's some risks involved with engaging around the issues that are impacting, you know, the least of these in our midst. But that is really a call of Christian discipleship as well. And it's really important, particularly in the face of evil or the face of injustice. Well, you, you help us to appreciate just how delicate, uh, how important, how complex uh, that navigation can be, but the necessity of undertaking it. Uh, it's not enough to just uh, stay on the shore. You have to get into the boat and navigate the difficult waters. Uh, and uh, I wasn't aware, I'm so sorry, I'm embarrassed that I don't know your earlier title. And you said mobilizing hope. Uh, hope. Right. Yep. Mobilizing hope. So that's going to be one of my next <laughs> uh, reads. Uh, because I, I, I think I think you help us in, in more than a few ways. One is, uh, I know you're a modest guy, uh, and it's always hard to be told that you're a prophetic voice. Uh, I know that kind of cringe moment myself, and you, you, you kind of feel like you don't want to get too big of a head. But I do think you have a prophetic message for us in this moment of time, and not exclusively for Christians. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, anybody who reads Bonhoeffer knows that any good is good for all, and no matter where it comes from uh, or to whom it, it's, it's given. And, and you give us a lot of good here, uh, both for the believer and the non-believer. And I would like you to say a, a word uh, somewhere in our discussion here about uh, the non-religious yeah. person. Uh, we have friends uh, in this podcast family who I know identify as either non-religious, non-affiliated, or atheist uh, without uh, apology. And, and, you know, how that crosses over, uh, you emphasize the importance of faith, and rightfully so, and particularly for American Christians uh, in this time. What about, what about the non-believer? What about the atheist? Uh, where where do these folks fit into your concept of the beloved uh, the beloved community? Yeah, no, thanks for the question. I mean, they are an essential part of it. They definitely are integral to the beloved community. And as you 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 kind of read that excerpt from my book about just how broad the arms of the beloved community are, and I do think it embraces people from different faith traditions and also people, as you, as you mentioned, that might be spiritual, but not religious or atheist. I think one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to the beloved community as a moral vision is again, it, it's this kind of blend of yes, religious values, but also civic values and put in a different way. It's a blend of humanistic values that I think resonate with people from all across different persuasions and, and uh, systems of belief. And, and one of the things that I've kind of touched on in the book is particularly for this kind of growing spiritual but not religious crowd, if you will, in this country. And in some ways you could 
say that they're the fastest growing uh, group in America, that, you know, they, if you, if you actually look at some of the data, so the Fetzer Institute did a study on spirituality in America, and I had a chance to be an advisor to it. It's a really amazing study that, that I really recommend to anyone listening. But what they found is they interviewed a really large sample size of people, including you know, a large group that would, that would identify as spiritual but not religious, that spirituality is highly correlated to pro-social action and to civic engagement. And I think that's just, you know, it's something that I would imagine, but I, I didn't necessarily have the data to then verify that, you know, my sense of it was actually, in fact, true. And I think that's really good news because I think our spirituality gives oxygen to the kind of pro-social engagement, or put another way, the kind of activism that I think is really going to be the heartbeat around how we ultimately strive toward achieving a more, uh, a more perfect union. And I'll just I'll just clarify one thing. I mean, I you know, obviously the more perfect union is that iconic language that comes out of the preamble of our constitution. A lot of people don't know the story behind that. There's a kind of unheralded founding father, if you will, of the country, Governor Morris, who literally wrote the majority of the preamble and included those words um, uh, to form a more perfect union. Well, the thing that I try to emphasize in this book is that one of the gifts of America, the brilliance of America, is the constant striving toward a more perfect union. And that work, that ongoing journey, is inextricably tied to us extending the promises of America to all Americans and to the ongoing work of justice and of becoming a more expansive we the people. So, you know, I don't want in any way to, you know, act or pretend as though our country wasn't initially founded by, you know, essentially white men, landholding men who were the ones who were initially able to exercise the right to vote, for example. But we have, you know, seen how a country has evolved in really important ways all the way into the present. And so, you know, I, I really feel like that, you know, the beloved community again is this, this really big tent vision that can hold all of this together. And, and I think we desperately need it because in some ways it is the critical counter narrative to the make, make America great again narrative that President Trump was able to communicate and in some cases manipulate so effectively, which in my mind was a really destructive narrative, not because there isn't greatness in America, but because it was really ahistorical, kind of ignoring all the ways in which America wasn't great for people of mm -hmm. color through many parts of the history, let alone for white Irish Catholics who were also persecuted and discriminated against for a big chunk of, their, of our history. And it was kind of a dog whistle to essentially try to tap into grievance and to fear and at worst to kind of say, you know, ultimately white America is the, you know, the primary America or the one that we should be protecting the most. So in order to counteract any negative narrative, you need a more positive, uplifting and unifying narrative. And that's what I try to do in this book is to really offer the beloved community as what that could look like. And, you know, we don't have time to unpack it all right now, but I offer up in the third part of the book, what I describe as the Beatitudes of the beloved community. You mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of my favorite <laughs> parts of scripture. And I kind of build on Jesus's Beatitudes and create a series of Beatitudes that I think are the markers for how we go about living in the beloved community. And they include things like, 
uh, an Ubuntu understanding of interdependence, uh, an Imago Dei understanding of equality, a commitment to radical welcome, a commitment to nonviolence, a commitment for dignity to dignity for all, and a commitment to environmental stewardship. And all those, you know, very much rooted in, again, both religious and civic values. So I'm hopeful that this book can be a catalyst for supercharging this kind of beloved community revolution that I think is already happening. It just needs to be scaled up and it needs to be embraced by a much larger set of, of folks who are working together to not only build a beloved community, but in the process, I truly believe we could and will form a more perfect union. Yeah, I loved your treatment of that in the book, uh, both the history of it uh, and of Morris in particular. I, I, I always enjoy when, uh, you know, someone unknown, a name that is not, uh, you know, popular or lionized, uh, ends up being the source of, of, you know, one of the most important elements in a people's history. And this phrase, a more perfect union, I think invites us to continuously perfect the union. In other words, it's never static. That's right. That's right. It's always dynamic. It's always progressing. And I think about that again for my fellow evangelicals, most of whom would identify as conservative in every way, culturally, theologically, uh, and politically, who, who, you know, often rehearse the need for us to go back to a better time in the past. And these days, I will remind them, I think you're talking about a time when most country clubs in this country would not allow my father to mm -hmm. join because he was Jewish right. and Jews were not welcome. Right. I think you're talking about a time uh, when a very large segment of the population with uh, African ancestry uh, could not drink from the same source of water as a white person uh, who was blocked from education and, and opportunity and jobs and all the rest and, and, and far, far worse. So let's remember those things. And, and you do treat this in the book, the need for truth-telling when it comes to uh, the story of the American people and the American Republic. Can you say just a, a few words? We're starting to run short on time, and I apologize for that, but I'm hoping this is enough to get folks to do exactly what I'm doing right now, which is reading A More Perfect Union. Uh, but can you just touch on that, uh, the need for us to tell the whole complete and true story? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the idea of America and, and really the, the commitment to the ideals of America have been contested since the beginning of our country. And, and one of the things that I think explains why we are so divided as a country is we suffer from a great deal of ignorance and in some cases amnesia or denial about our history. And this is kind of showing up in a really frustrating debate right now around you know, this kind of boogeyman of critical race theory, which to me is a distraction. What's kind of underneath that is a lot of unease within certain parts of the country, particularly many kind of white Christian and white evangelical parts of the country that 
really are trying to clamp down on how we teach about some of the uglier parts of our history. But the, the reason why that's so important is that history as a way of rhyming and the past continues to influence and show up in the present. Maya Angelou, the great poet, once said that you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And the great black author, James Baldwin, an activist once said, those who refuse to acknowledge their history remain captive to it. And so when we don't understand our history, and if we don't have an accurate reading of our history, then we are that much more liable to allow the mistakes of the past to continue to be to show up in the present. And we don't have a shared baseline of understanding of what we've gone through as a country and where we are on the path toward a more perfect union. And so, yeah, I, I, I you know, use the words of Jesus who said, only the truth will set us free and kind of play off of that to say only the whole truth about our nation's history will ultimately enable us to kind of build toward the realization of a more perfect union. And I'll give you a prime example. So, you know, this last spring, I guess it was early summer, the nation commemorated the hundred year, the centennial anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. And, you know, this was just a horrific moment in our history where vigilantes were deputized by the police to go into what was called Black Wall Street in Tulsa and wreaked havoc, literally burnt it to the ground, killing hundreds. And it's not certainly a part of history that I knew about until very recently, or at least in the last uh, 10 or so years. They did a survey of Oklahomans and 60% of them had never heard of the Tulsa massacre. And so, you know, here's this just, I think really important moment in our history that I think is, is extremely important to be taught. And it just is, was erased from our history books, even where it took place. That's just one example of many that I could point to where, you know, again, it's just so important that we understand our history and we can do it in a way that doesn't come from a place of self-loathing or of, you know, losing a sense of pride for America or love for America. I would actually argue, and I do this in a chapter that's focused on what I call a redemptive patriotism, that patriotism becomes redemptive when we repent for and acknowledge the mistakes and the sins of the past, and when we embrace the ideals that ultimately make America worth cherishing. And we work together to try to more fully realize those ideals. And so I, I really think that there's an opportunity here by as we kind of uncover the good, the bad, and even the ugly of our history so that it can better inform how we go about the work that is so desperately needed to build a beloved community today. You know, back in 1988, I can't, I, I can't believe it was that long ago, uh, but um, I did a walk from the border of Canada to into Mexico on behalf of the people uh, known as Los Pepenadores, the, the inhabitants of the massive municipal garbage dumps in and around Mexico City. And we were building clinics and schools and so forth uh, for them. And as I was walking through the south on this four-month uh, open road trek, I would come on uh, scenes that, you know, I'd only ever read about uh, in, in the history books. Mm. Uh, 
a, a, a colored only hotel uh, in ruins um, on a back country road. Uh, a, um, I remember a, a drinking fountain in what looked like had been an old school uh, that said um, white only and realizing this wasn't so long ago. It's not like we're summoning distant memory from eons ago. In fact, the Tulsa massacre that you referenced occurred in my own mother's lifetime. So these aren't so far away, which indicates a kind of willful denial and an inability, I think, on, on the part of some I know there are more nefarious reasons that we engage in that kind of willful uh, amnesia. But th there's also a sort of, if you can describe it as a benign version of that, but it's, a, it, it's an unwillingness to face the pain and complexity. And I think you help us in, 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 in your presentation on all of this in a more perfect union, you really help us to start coming to terms with it. And I think it will be particularly helpful to pastors, other religious community leaders, uh, certainly for lay leaders within congregations. I think it crosses over easily the principles that you espouse here crossover very easily into other religious and non-religious communities. So I want to thank you, Adam, first of all, for laboring. I know what it is to write a book. There ain't anything easy about it. And I know there are times you want to start banging your head against a wall uh, or run from your desk and your keyboard because it, it exacts a lot from you. And no doubt this book did because of the quality product that it is. So I thank you for laboring over this gift uh, to all of us. I do want to encourage uh, particularly those of you in our podcast family who are religious leaders, whether you are denominational officials, whether you are institutional executives, whether you are uh, professors, teachers, instructors, uh, or of course, uh, pastors or congregational leaders of another sort, you really will benefit from and you will be grateful for this new title, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community by my friend, colleague, fellow traveler, and I think a prophetic voice for our time, Adam Russell Taylor, published by Broadleaf Books. Let's get it. Let's all read it. I'm about uh, halfway through. I almost skipped ahead, Adam, <laughs> to your treatment of the Beatitudes right. of the Beloved. <laughs> I found that so enticing, I thought, but I, I'm not going to ruin this for myself. I'm going to keep moving through the sermon. Point one, point two. <laughs> right. well, I'm, point I'm a Baptist, three, so you know I got three points. Right? In, in the That's right. <laughs> exactly. I saw it there. Nice structure. Very well done. Uh, very good read, enjoyable, I dare say, for uh, at the risk of sounding, you know, a, a little trite or using a hackneyed phrase, it's a page turner. Uh, I, I don't want to put it down. Uh, 
and I know those who get it won't. And, and uh, so here's what I'm going to recommend, folks uh, in our family. Uh, get Adam's book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Read it. Uh, let's exchange uh, communiques on it. Uh, and then be sure if you haven't read Sanctorum Communio yet, uh, which uh, we might say was Bonhoeffer's take on, on the beloved community, uh, you've probably already read Life Together. You may not have read his first doctoral dissertation, but it informs virtually all of Bonhoeffer's work for the rest of uh, his short life. And I think it resonates well with what Adam presents for us in a more perfect union. Adam, I could talk to you for days. You don't have that time. I know you've got important things to do, leading sojourners and so many other things. I got to skedaddle. But boy, I can't wait till we have another opportunity to sit together and just talk about the things that really matter, like a new vision for building the beloved community in our own time and for the future. It's been wonderful sharing this. And when I see you next in person, I hope and pray, I got to get your, your uh, autograph on this volume because it's going to go right in my autographed collection when I'm done with it. Yeah. So thanks, no, Adam. Thanks, Rob. It's been an so honor to be with you. Let me just mention one quick thing. There's a, a study guide. Sure. If you go on to our website at www.sojo.net backslash ampu. So for a more perfect union, you can both get a, a free excerpt from the book if you want to check it out first before you buy it, but you can also access a study guide designed for churches. Uh, so I just want to let you know there's actually a new video that Fantastic. just released on the website. So there's some good stuff on there. And uh, yeah. Even better. Yeah. Even better. Folks, we can put this stuff to work in our respective circles immediately using those tools. Tell us one more time how to get to them. Um, it is sojo.net and then backslash A-M-P-U. Okay, and folks, we'll make sure it's in the text surrounding this podcast episode. And uh, so we're not done with Adam Russell Taylor, author of A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Uh, it's out now. Can we get it now? So Adam? it's actually released on September 14th. You can pre-order it pretty That's much right. anywhere now. So whatever your favorite bookstore is, you can okay. definitely pre-order it and it gets shipped out on the 14th. Fantastic. We're all going to get it. We're going to read it. We're going to talk about it. And we're going to let it guide us along with the study guide. And you got videos. You can't beat that. <laughs> got to get, gotta, gotta right. get to those videos. I'm going to do the same. Folks, we'll make sure you have all those links in the text surrounding this episode. Make sure you share this episode with your friends, family, fellow church members, certainly with your colleagues. Adam, thanks so much for such a rich conversation. Thank you.